All right, welcome to the Love Thy Neighbor Podcast Network. This is Anthony Wilson, and I'm back again with another video. If you're listening to this uh, via podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, uh, please make sure you follow and subscribe and click so you can get notifications when these videos and podcasts drop. Uh, today we have a, a, stink, a distinguished guest. I'm excited about this. I've learned a lot um, from listening to this gentleman from afar off, and so. To get to actually um, interview him and talk to him is an exciting thing for me. So uh, I hope that you guys enjoy uh, what we have lined up for you today. Uh, I want you to welcome uh, Dr. Layton Flowers to our show. It's great to be here, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for making the time and uh, coming on. I actually just uh, watched you recently on um, another guy's podcast and YouTube channel that I, I watch, and I've had him on my podcast, uh, Vocab Malone. Uh, that was yeah. an interesting conversation <laughs> to watch you guys interact. <laughs> I, I, I promise yeah. I, 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 it'll be very calm on, <laughs> on this. <laughs> Vocab's a good guy, and he, yeah, he is you know, def- I, I, defending, his, defending his view vigorously, and I, yes. I, I appreciate, I appreciate oh, that about him. I, I love Vocab. Vocab, uh, um, has helped me out a lot with uh, learning to deal with the uh, Hebrew Israelites, which is uh, an interesting group, but he he is a uh, foremost authority on them, um, in yes. my opinion. So had, you know, had a great time with him, and I'm glad that you're on. Um, now, if you could just tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself, um, who you are, uh, your background, just a little bit. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, my name is Leighton Flowers. Uh, I am be- married to a beautiful woman named Laura, who is a, a family marriage counselor. Uh, we have four children, um, uh, only one of which is still at home. The rest are off to college. And uh, we live in Garland, Texas, just north of Dallas. Um, I am the director of evangelism for Texas Baptist. That's my real job. Uh, um, I plan evangelism and apologetic conferences. I train churches and individuals on how to share their faith effectively. I've been doing that for my entire adult life. I was the youth evangelism director before I became the evangelism director. And so I've been a part of uh, Texas Baptist for over 18 years was a, with a local church uh, previous decade before that. And so that's been my livelihood, but people online typically know me for Sociology 101. And that is a podcast I created because I was a Calvinist for 10 years and I left Calvinism. I ended up writing my dissertation on this topic and I felt like there was kind of a void in the internet world, uh, especially YouTube and podcast, uh, really from somebody who's not a Calvinist, really explaining why we aren't Calvinist and what we do believe, kind of, kind of both the polemic against what Calvinists are saying, but also the positive aspect of what we believe as provisionist or non-Calvinistic um, theologians uh, that hold to a sociological perspective that doesn't teach that God has pre-selected a certain number of people that he's going to save through effectual or irresistible means. We believe instead you do have the responsibility to respond to the gospel and that you're able to respond to his appeals because he loves people and he wants all people to be saved. He genuinely sends the gospel to every man, woman, boy, and girl because he genuinely wants everyone to come back into reconciliation with him. 
Um, and that's why we call it provisionism. God provides. Yes, we're dead. Yes, we're enslaved. Yes, we're all the bad things that all the Calvinists says that we are. But guess what? God is good, and he provides for dead, uh, enslaved, hardened sinners, and he provides in a way that is sufficient for anyone and everyone to be saved. And that's the message we're really trying to get out there. The reason I created it on a different page, Anthony, was because um, and some people think, well, he's a one-string banjo. That's all he ever talks about, all these kinds of things. I, I created this on a different page because I know it's a controversial topic, and I didn't want it to overrun my personal page and my ministry page on evangelism because evangelism is, is paramount, and I don't want it to get distracted with an intervarsity debate among Christians over predestination and election and those kinds of things. So some people may not like that about the way I've set this up, or it may come across to them that this is all I ever talk about, but the truth of the matter is um, if you followed me throughout my life and my ministry and my world, you would probably hear me talk about Calvinism just about the same amount of, of time you would hear me talk about it if you uh, listen to my program re regularly, because I, I usually spend about five to 10 hours a week, if that, in kind of a pastime, theology geeking out with my friends on YouTube over soteriology. And so this is something, it's a labor of love. It's something I enjoy doing because I'm a theology geek. But there are obviously uh, very important things above and beyond our sociological differences. And I'm hope, hopeful that the work that I've done in my dissertation, the books that I've written, the podcast that I've created, will at least help people who are not Calvinistic to understand how to defend their perspective against really uh, kind of the resurging of Calvinistic think that's out there on the internet. And hopefully I can give some strong, robust answers to some of the best arguments that Calvinists bring. Well, yes, um, well, I have enjoyed uh, listening to you on your YouTube channel, uh, and that's actually the only thing I've heard from you. So I, I do uh, want to check out, you know, more of your evangelistic, uh, uh, you know, uh, platforms, because that is something that is important. You know, uh, today we're going to discuss uh, a little bit about predestination. But leading into predestination is salvation, right? And right. so that's really why the the topic of predestination is important because God wants all men to be saved. He actually yeah. that is his heart's desire, and to think that somehow he's only selected uh, this amount of people, <laughs> you know, to be saved, and these people are going to be lost. Um, we were having this discussion, and I was like, wow that really is not a loving God. <laughs> if, you know, if, if he's already predetermined, you won't be saved. So who cares about what happens to you? How is that love? And so uh, we were uh, doing the discussion and, and one of the, the verses that come up um, that are, are very significant in this conversation uh, is that there's a, a verse in Romans, Romans uh, chapter eight, and I'm pretty sure you're familiar with it. Romans chapter eight, verses 29 and 30. Um, those verses are the basis for a lot of discussion because it uses the term foreknowledge. It uses the term predestination. Um, and these things lead into, you know, uh, called, justified, you know, glorified, all those things. So foreknowledge, uh, Dr. Lathan, is there, what's the difference when we talk about foreknowledge and predestination, how do we distinguish those or, and, or how do they distinguish from each other? And then how do they complement each other? So I think we got to separate them and then show how they come together. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, foreknowledge means exactly the way it sounds. It means known before. 
Um, it, it, God knows things before they happen. He knows people in the past. That's also a way you could use the word foreknown. Um, when Paul talks about you've known me in former times, uh, that's the same word, prognosco, the word foreknew. It's the same word Paul uses in chapter 11, verse 2, to refer to the Israelites of old. He had a relationship previously with uh, Elijah, and the, the 7,000 refused to bow a knee to Baal. He had an he had a intimate relationship with them, and he knew them before he, he had relationship with them. And so to, to speak of foreknowledge, sometimes we, we kind of add a bunch of esoteric baggage to that and make it more complicated than it really is. Um, but foreknowledge does carry with it the concept of, uh, of love, because obviously Elijah, he had a relationship with Elijah. He loved Elijah. He knew him in the past. Um, and that's the way I take uh, the concept of prognosco or foreknowledge in, uh, in chapter eight as well, is that, that he's laying out, uh, as verse 20, uh, 28 says, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So it's not just him uh, determining everything that happens. It's him working good for his people, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And how would Paul prove that? Well, I believe he would look at those formerly known, uh, those known in the past. And this is my particular take. There's several scholars that I list in my book as well that have held to this uh, per, uh this perspective, it's not one of the predominant perspectives that you'll normally see between the typical Arminian versus Calvinist debate, and therefore it's kind of been overshadowed over the years in my estimation. Um, I do think there are other viable non-Calvinistic renderings of Romans 8.29, but I, I still am very firm in my, in my uh, defense of what I, I think Paul is saying here. He's using the word prognosco in the exact same way he uses it just two chapters later is that he's talking about those he has he has known uh, before. And I know when you're introduced to a new way of looking at a verse and you've never been taught that way before, it may sound strange to you. I've had people who now actually believe this verse when they first were introduced to it, they kind of go, that's just silly. I don't believe that at all. That's, you know, that nobody believes that. I've never heard anybody believe that before. But then after they dealt with it a while and uh, wrestled with it a while, they've come back around and said, yeah, you know what? That really does make so much more sense of the passage because when it says, for those he formerly knew, he also predestined to become conformed into the image of his son, so that they would be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. So even the vernacular there seems to be shifting to past tense. Um, in verse 29, everything starts going to past tense. And it even says, so that they would be the firstborn of many brothers, as if he's talking about the, the saints of old becoming the firstborn of many brothers when right. Christ came. And so I, I just think it fits the overall context. There's no esoteric baggage. There's no rare usage of Greek like the, the other translation has to say, well, because it says glorified here, these he justified, he also glorified. Well, Paul and the other saints aren't already glorified. And so the, they have to use a very, and there is a very rare usage of the, the Greek that can use past tense in the sense that it's as good as done, um, in, in a sense that saying we're so sure this is going to happen that we can actually use the errors past tense here to, to, to say that. And so it's a viable translation. In other words, when I say viable, it's a possible translation. There are possible meaning of the apostle to, to use that terminology, but it's very rare according to Greek scholars. And my translation is not very rare. It's the most basic easiest to understand, and it's also using prognosco in the exact same way the author uses it just two chapters later. So I think that my translation 
because it doesn't create a lot of difficulty, philosophical quandaries, and all kinds of, of, of heartache with that, it's just simply saying that God, uh, for those, he, he's trying to prove a point. If God has done this for those saints of old, we can know he'll do it for us. He, he works out all things together for those who love him, just like he did for those who loved him in the past. And so he's going through and showing how he has shown his love to Elijah and to Moses and to, and to all the saints of old, all those who, who, who loved him and were called by his name. He has always worked out good for them so that they would become the firstborn of many brothers. And so that, that, that leads right into so that he would become the firstborn of many brothers and sisters, and these whom he predestined, in other words, he destined beforehand, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified, all past tense verbs. And I think the reason they're all in past tense is because they're referring to people of the past, those loved and called by God in the past. Now, some people say, well, verse 28 is not about people in the past, it's about right now. He works all things out presently, actively, right now. And we say, yes, we agree. We're not disagreeing with that. But the reason he shifts from verse 28 in the present tense to verse 29 and 30 in the past tense is because I think Paul is making the case for those in the past being loved and called by God, just like those formerly known, loved and called by God. We can know that if we love God and are called according to his purposes, that we are predestined to become uh, children of the Most High. We, we are predestined to become conformed into the likeness of our, uh, our Savior. Uh, we, we are, we are ju justified, and therefore we know that we are going to be glorified because it is, it is destined beforehand for all who are in Christ Jesus to become conformed and to be glorified. And so we can know that that's the case. And then he asks the question, what shall we say to these things? Right, right. If God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, if God was for Abraham, look what he did for Abraham. If God was for Elijah, look what he did for Elijah. If God is for us presently, actively, those love who love God and are called according to his purpose, we can know he's going to work out all things. Who can be against us? He is there for us. And so I think that's the basic, most simple reading of this passage and, um, and, and it gives a, a lot of hope for believers to know that God's going to bring good, even when the circumstances don't seem so great. Yeah, I, I, I definitely like the, the, the symmetry of how you uh, brought those things in progression, to, even into that verse, if God be for us. Because I was wondering if you were going to even talk about that, because it, it, it makes sense that Paul is talking about something um, as a testimonial, because he's an Old Testament scholar, right? So he knows what has happened before him, being uh, a Pharisee of Pharisees, being a, a Jew, growing up, hearing the stories. He's uh, explaining to the Romans what has come before them and then what they can look forward to. Um, yeah. So often I, I, I've made this statement, and so I'm going to, you know, kind of uh, throw it out at you, that when we're talking about predestination, God is predestined the means by which we are saved, but he's not predestining who is going to be saved. Is that, is that safe to say is, is that he yeah. set up how it's going to happen. He's given us yeah. the cross. And he, so uh, go ahead and speak to that. I, you know, I don't want to. Yeah. Talk. The, the two, the two major verses that are known for predestination are the one that we just went through. And that says we're predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. So who is predestined to be conformed in the likeness of Christ? Believers, okay? So God has predestined for anyone who is believer in Christ to be conformed into his image. That's what's predestined. In Ephesians chapter one, what does it say we're predestined to? 
to become holy and blameless. Well, who is holy and blameless? Christ. So it's the same thing. It's saying God has predestined us, the faithful in Christ Jesus, is what it's referring to. If you look at Ephesians 1 and 2, he's talking to the saints, the, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So who's the us in Christ that he's referring to in chapter uh, 1 of Ephesians verse 4? The faithful in Christ Jesus. He is predestined for the faithful in Christ Jesus to become holy and blameless. That's sanctification. So what it's saying is God is predestined before the foundation of the world that whoever's in Christ Jesus through faith, whether male or female, Jew, Gentile, slave free, no matter how bad you've been in your life, God is destined beforehand before the foundation of the world. He is destined not that you will believe in Christ, but he is predestined that if you believe in Christ, if you're in the, the son, then these are the spiritual blessings that I've laid out for you. These are, these are the, 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 a good illustration of this is be like a, if someone says, okay, there's a, a, a shelter and, and God says, there's a shelter that will save you from the coming storm, almost like the Passover kind of thing. If you get under the shelter, you will be safe. I've predestined before this ever happens. If you're in the shelter, you will be safe. If you stay outside the shelter, you will surely die. Almost like the ark. You know, if you're in the ark, you will be safe. If you're outside the ark, you will surely drown. So that is a, a form of predestination. And therefore you could say those who die in the storm, you could say, were they predestined to die? And you could say, well, yes, they weren't predestined to stay outside of the shelter, but that God did destine beforehand that if anyone stayed outside the shelter, they would surely die. Um, did he, could you say that those who were in the shelter were predestined to live? You could say, well, yes, in the sense that God predestined that anyone in the shelter would certainly live. And the same kind of vernacular is used in scripture quite regularly, that, that God has destined beforehand what will come of those who are uh, under um, his blessings or in his covenant. And so if, if uh, you choose to come into covenant by grace through faith, then God is destined beforehand what will come of you. Um, and the, another illustration I've used with young people that really helps is kind of an airplane analogy. An airplane flying from you know Dallas to Chicago tomorrow at noon is predestined. It is The destination is already set, but it's up to you whether to get on the plane or not. Now, once you get on the plane, it's sealed shut, and 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 now the destination will the plane will take you to the destination that was predetermined by the airlines. But you're responsible as to whether you get on the plane or not. In the same way, uh, we're responsible as to whether we put our trust in Christ or not. But God is the one who has destined beforehand what will come of those who do put our faith in Christ. Amen. Yeah, that's definitely. You know, I was looking at the that that Greek word for predestination, and one of the things that stood out to me in, you know, the definition or the way that word, you know, is, is depicted is that it is a presetting of boundaries. So the boundaries are yes. preset. And so that's what he's doing is he's setting the boundaries or the limits. These are the things that are predestined, the boundaries. So like you said, you know, if you get into the shelter, there is safety. If you don't go into the shelter, there is disaster or death. That is what's who's going to be in the shelter he's not predestining who except for uh he's he's predestining what will happen if you take this predestined uh direction so to speak correct so correct. i think uh i remember trying to teach that in the class and i remember how difficult it was for people to wrap their brains around him knowing something and not making it happen determine it yeah. determining it and so how do we uh, how do we articulate that in a way that the average person can understand that just by knowing something 
does it mean that you're determining what is going to happen? Yeah, and I mean, that's a philosophical issue um, because it's it's something beyond our, con our concept of, of understanding. Um, it, it is above and beyond us to understand how infinite knowledge works. But that's true of all the omni uh, uh, aspects of who God is. Uh, for example, if I said, you know, Anthony, how did God make something from nothing? I mean, we're just going to go, I don't, I don't know, but we, we believe that he did, and, and we accept that mystery. But if I say, how does he know my future free choices without determining my future free choices? And you say, well, I don't know, but I, I believe that he does. That doesn't make it any, any less true. And so it's one thing to say, I believe that God can do something or God knows something without knowing how he does it. And I'm perfectly fine with leaving the how to God and saying his ways are beyond our ways. Now, there's a lot of people who try to speculate as to how he could know what future choices will be. And, and typically Calvinists, at least the, the ones that are consistently theistic determinists, which most of them are, John Calvin certainly was, John Piper certainly is, um, that they believe the reason God knows the future is because he's decreed or determined whatsoever is coming to pass. So they're stepping into the how. And they're explaining to you how God knows what people will choose to do. And I just don't think that the Bible ever tells us that God has to determine the choices in order to know them. I think his, um, his omniscience is, is not just him knowing what he's determined for people to do. It's him knowing what people freely choose to do. So when he says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows, mm -hmm. I, I don't think anybody reads that at first glance and thinks to themselves, Oh, that must mean that Jesus is somehow causing Peter to deny him three right. times before the rooster crows. Well, no, he's he's predicting, he's telling, uh, he's prophesying. I mean, this is what makes it supernatural. Um, if if he was causing somehow Peter to do this, then it wouldn't be so supernatural. Uh, what makes this such a supernatural thing is to be able to to be able to predict what a free person that you're not controlling is going to do. That is supernatural. For, for me to, you know, foretell, like if I have a, I'm a computer programmer and I create an avatar world that I have programmed the code for all their behaviors and actions and interactions, and I, and I foretell to you what the avatars are going to do later today, you would just go, hmm, okay, that's, that's interesting. Right. But if I could, for, but if that, that's not supernatural though, there's, I mean, that's even people can do that. But if I were to tell you what all your listeners right now who I don't have any control over whatsoever. I don't even know their names, but suppose I could name their names and tell you exactly what they're going to do tomorrow. You would be blown away, especially if I was right. Why? Because that would be supernatural. Foretelling what other people are going to do that you're not controlling, right. that is a supernatural prophecy that is obviously divine. We can't do that, obviously, because we're not divine. We don't have omniscience. But certainly God can, even though you in your finite ways can't explain how he does it. And I certainly don't want to step into speculation and in saying the only way God knows that rape's going to happen and molestations are going to happen and murder is going to happen is if he somehow decrees or determines it to happen, especially when the Bible says he's not even, he doesn't even tempt men to sin, that he's angry at people who do these kinds of things, that he's going to bring justice against these, kind of, these kinds of decisions. And first of John 2.16 says that pride and lust are not from the Father, but from the world. Why in the world would we conclude something so heinous and evil as to say God somehow determined pride and lustful decisions of the future? And that's because that's the only way we can fathom that he would, uh, he would be able to know it is if he somehow determined it. That's a very, very low view of God, in my opinion. And I, and I think it has to be stood against very, very strongly. 
Yeah, yeah. I was, um, we were looking at uh, a verse in Acts, um, Acts chapter four, uh, verses 26 through 28. I don't know if you're familiar. So I'm just going to read it. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed one. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so specifically, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is the ESV version, if it sounds a little different. But but when I'm, I know when a lot of people read this, they say, well, wait a minute. See, right there. <laughs> God orchestrated every detail of this. How, how can we not say that he's not orchestrating every detail that's happening to everybody everywhere? Uh, and so, right. you know, my answer to them, you know, was that this this is a very specific situation having to do with salvation and this was him presetting the boundary or the parameters for how we we're going to be saved this needed to happen or there was going to be no opportunity for salvation but i think there probably needs to be a little bit more said about this so that the average person can say okay i get i get that because otherwise people look at a verse like this and say look no it's right there he god manipulated everything and everybody this happened. I think God is manipulating everything in my life, everything in everybody's life. How do we answer this? Yeah, the first thing I point out is that just because God determines to bring about the redemption of sin uh, through Calvary doesn't mean he somehow predestined to bring about all the sin that Christ died for on Calvary. Otherwise, you've got him redeeming his own you know, his own determinations. Like I'm going to determine this person to sin, but then I'm also going to determine the means by which this person's sin is redeemed. So I'm going to clean up my own mess in a sense. That, that's, it's kind of absurd when you really think about it. Um, this, is, this is an example of where omniscience steps in, that by omniscience, not omnideterminism. In other words, you don't have to have God determining the pride and the lust and the uh, evil deeds of Pontius Pilate and Herod and all of the the actors in the in the the you know the story of Christ's crucifixion you can have him knowing permitting and using them in their already evil plan and evil ways like he does with Pharaoh in the Passover I mean he, he doesn't have to make Pharaoh into a corrupt man in order to use him in his corruption uh, to harden somebody means to give them over to their resolve that means to blind them in their already rebellious conditions so as to use their rebellious actions for a good purpose. And, and we can relate to this even in our own uh, world with law enforcement. And I use this illustration in my book just because I think it gives an example from a human level how these kinds of things can happen. The police department may know who the drug dealers are that in the town, but they have to be able to prove it and they have to be able to catch them. And this is one of the reasons sometimes they'll set up a sting operation where a cop will go undercover and pretend to be one of the drug dealers get to know the drug dealers and help to orchestrate, predetermine the selling of drugs at a particular time in a particular place in order to catch and to stop drug the selling of drugs in order to catch them. 
So they're predetermining a bad thing to happen, the selling of drugs, for a good purpose, the stopping of drugs, right? And so you would you would say if you saw something like that play out, you would say that the, the police officers are doing a good thing for a good purpose. Yes, they have determined beforehand to bring about this seemingly evil event for a good purpose. But you would never say that, well, that means, therefore, police determine all drug activities at all times and that they're somehow uh, implicit in the desires of the drug dealers who participate in that drug deal. Uh, that's, of course, not true. The police officers just know who the criminals are. They know what they would do if given the opportunity to sin and to sell drugs. Uh, and in the same way, God knows Pontius Pilate's heart. He knows Herod's heart. He knows Judas's heart. And he uses Judas and Pontius Pilate and Herod and all the other actors in their already rebellious condition, blinding them from the truth of who Christ is by speaking to them in parabolic language and sending them a spirit of stupor, it says. And he uses them in their rebellion to bring out about, uh, about a good purpose of redemption through them. Never is God holy, uh, unholy or unjust. He is always meticulously just and holy. He is a good God. And any kind of theology which ultimately undermines the holiness and the goodness of the character of God should be questioned and should be uh, immediately cast out whenever there's a better translation available. And the truth of the matter is, there has always been better translations offered by scholars throughout human history. In fact, I would argue for the first 450 years of the church uh, prior to the coming of Augustine onto the scene, all exclusively taught what I'm teaching with regard to how God brought about his purposes and his plans and did not teach what we would understand as determinism today. Um, and, and so we, we have to be very skeptical of a theology that was introduced in the early fifth century by someone who was a former Gnostic um, and, and had other uh, issues uh, in his life. Not, that's not to say that Augustine was uh, all bad. There was a lot of good uh, within Augustine. He was a genius. He had a lot of great writings, especially in his early years. But um, it, it seems to me, and a lot of scholars agree with this and have made the case, that Augustine introduced this new way of thinking that he kind of imposes into the text. And before that, people just didn't understand the Bible this way uh, and interpret it this way. And um, Luther and uh, later Calvin and many others largely depended upon the writings of Augustine to come to their conclusions with regard to predestination and uh, the concept of theistic determinism. So um, these are the kinds of things that I think that we should be good Bereans, that we should be willing to, to really go to the Word as they are authority and say, what does the Word of God say about these things? And is, is this doctrine going to bring into question the character and the goodness of our God? Right, because if, if, if Scripture says clearly, you know, 2 Peter 3, 9, that God is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering and he is not willing for anyone to perish. How do we come up with these theological stances that have God purposely causing people to perish? It just doesn't make sense, you know, that he, if he says he's not willing for that to happen, how do we come up with ways to say, no, yes, he's, he's willing because he's determining this person to die in their sins and this person to, to, to be saved? Uh, these arguments just seem like, because I'm trying to figure out what the benefit is, you know, for yeah. someone who is teaching that theology, how are they, you know, and, and a lot of them, their, their heart is to, you know, to, to promote God and his holiness and his greatness. 
But at the same time, they, it, it, it's almost like they're doing the opposite if, if a person really unpacks what they're saying. Because a lot yeah. of the ideas that have caused people that I know um, to kind of walk away from Christianity or be kind of put off by it are rooted in Calvinistic theology. And as I grew in my study and I started finding that out because I didn't know anything about Calvinism to, up until about four or five years ago. I really had never heard anything about it. And then I started realizing that some of the things that I was believing, I was like, wait a minute, that that's really not what the Bible is saying. This is just what, you know, we're kind of taught. I started going back and looking at scriptures all over again with fresh eyes, as if I never read them before. And I said, I just want to know what this really says. And so what is the benefit of, of, of teaching a, a version of God that is arbitrarily just I'm throwing these people away. I'm accepting these people. What is the benefit of that? Well, when I was a Calvinist, I wouldn't, I was, I wasn't attempting to read a passage based upon how it would benefit me. I wanted to read a passage and be honest to the meaning of the text, even if, if I didn't like it so much. And so I think a lot of Calvinists are adopting a, a Calvinistic reading because they genuinely think that's what the Bible's teaching. At least that's the way I was when I was a Calvinist. And so I, I don't think that there's uh, an ill will or, you know, some alternative, uh, alternative motive in their heart to say, I'm going to, you know, just deceive people or get them to, get them to believe in this. Um, there, there is maybe a, a, you know, there's certain types of people who tend towards deterministic thinking, um, the personality, if you do personality tests, mm. um, there are certain personalities that, that tend to be more deterministic in their thinking. Um, computer programmer types, you know, people who are very, uh, you know, meticulous with details and those kinds of things tend to be uh, a little bit more in the deterministic realm. Men, men more so than women, uh, tend to be more deterministic thinking. Um, you know, uh, harsher people, people who are a little bit meaner <laughs> around the uh, <laughs> you know, a little bit stricter, I guess you might be able to say, and this debates in the Islamic world too. There's, there's actually people, uh, Muslims who believe in Allah as a determinist God and, and others who believe in free will among Muslims. Um, and who are the ones flying their plane into the buildings and doing all the radical things, more the deterministic side. Um, and, and the same is true in the Christian world throughout history. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not obviously trying to say that Calvinists today are doing uh, evil, bad things like this. But what I'm trying to say is throughout the history of the Christian church, the people who are burning people at the stake, uh, the people who are more likely to own slaves and to do things that we would look back on and be ashamed of, more likely were more the deterministic thinkers and, and the kinds of thinkers. Now, that's not to say that there, there were free willers out there that did bad things too. I'm not trying to say this is exclusive. I'm just saying, if you look at the statistics, um, that it tended that way. And so the reason I point that out is not to say that that therefore means it must be wrong, right. but it does make you question as, as to what kind of mindset um, this, this can create within people and sometimes even within the church, if it's taken to seed, if it's taken too far. I don't think men like John Piper have taken things to seed. I think that they are genuinely nice, kind people who are great pastors and good uh, overall people. I just I just think that their worldview attracts to it people who tend to be more that way, and therefore the movement itself can go off the rails pretty quickly. In fact, there are some Calvinists who even predict um, 
that Calvinism will resurge back up like it has four times in the last 500 years, and then it will eat its own. And they actually say hyper-Calvinists will actually end up destroying the movement um, because that's what's happened every time it's resurged in the past. And, and I, I always just point back to my Calvinist friends and say, well, why do you think that happens? It's either because the, the, the system isn't tenable and it just doesn't work, or because God predestined for it to die back out um, and determined it to die back out. Why would he do that? Why would he determine his own truth to, uh, to die back out like that? And doesn't make a, a lot of rational sense. And so it's not a tenable way of living life. Even people who believe in determinism uh, tend to act as if their choices matter and the decisions they make um, right. make a difference in, in reality. Um, and because it's practically the better way to live life, um, in, in my estimation. And, and, I, and I think when people are really, really uh, honest with themselves, I think most of them would agree that even if they hold to a deterministic way of thinking, they, they deep down know that it's actually better to, to act as if we truly are responsible for our decisions um, and that God is not somehow controlling what we will decide to do. Right, right, right. I think, that, I think, I think that's a great uh, a, a great answer because that that's 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 always been a tough one for me trying to figure that out because I've, I've never really held to any one of the you know calvinism arminianism I, I never really held to any of those um but i would listen to them and i would say well that sounds right there and but that sounds right how can they both be right about you know certain things is be, and, and and i figured out that well it's really not either side being right. It's about the Bible being true, right? And so where the Bible is true, that's where we find our agreement. And that's where we find our balance is just, you know, trying to understand what the Bible actually says about things. You know, I, I think what you said makes sense, the, the deterministic mindset. I think it's for a lot of people, that's easier, you know, to think it's already set. There's nothing I can do about it. If God said it, that's it. It's over, you know, and you can kind of live your life and you'll find your way to the path if that's what God wants. It's like the phrase, I hear this phrase a lot and, you know, I'm going to let you speak to what it really means, but I hear a lot of people say, well, I'll, you know, yeah, this interview, well, if the Lord wills it, yeah, I'll have this interview with, with Dr. with Dr. Lathan. And I, I both of us would still have to right make a choice to be here. We're not compelled, right, by God to you're gonna be there because I set that date for you to be there. Did we have a choice to be here today? <laughs> of course. Of course. Yeah. And, and, and whenever the passage, you know, that I, I can't remember where it's at off the top of my head, where it says, I think maybe James or James, uh, James chapter four, yeah, yeah. where it talks about, yeah, when you pray, um, you know, pray and saying, if, if the Lord wills that this will be, that will be. Um, and, and the, what, what I point out is that, you know, for example, if one of my kids is invited over to his friend's house and he says, well, if my parents will it, if my parents will allow me, I'll oh, be there. Mm-hmm. And just there like when is. Paul says, you know, if, if the Lord wills it, I'll come see you. Um, and and what, what that means is, is that I need his permission, I need his <laughs> yes, blessing yes. upon, the, I, I want to, I want to do this, but I need, I need God's guidance. And so the man chooses his way, but the Lord guides his steps. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's, a, you're still making a choice there. 
And it may be that the Lord doesn't will it. It may be that I tell my kids, no, you can't go because your grandmother's coming over tonight and you have to stay home. Um, and so I don't will it that you get to go. And so, and my will overrides your will because I'm the father in the same, in the same way with God, God may not will for this or that to happen, even though you may will for this or that to happen. So there's nothing predestinarian about that, or in a, in a sense of predestination or predeterminism of any sort, um, that that's uh, kind of absurd. It seems to me that sometimes uh, the mistake is made is that if I can find somewhere in scripture where God thwarts the will of man, then I've proved determinism. Yeah. Well, what is there to thwart if determinism is true? Because there is no will of man. Every, every The will of man is whatever God has willed it to will. The, 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 <laughs> right. the, the fact that there's a thwarting of the will proves that there's a will to thwart. Um, if, if, if Jonah wants to go to Tarsus instead of to Nineveh, God steps in with a big fish to thwart his free will. It doesn't make any sense to think that God somehow deterministically made Jonah want to go to Tarsus only to step in with a big fish to change his mind to make him do what he wants. The, the examples of God thwarting the will of man are examples of free will. They don't disprove free will. And it, it amazes me because I hear otherwise smart, intelligent people making that elementary of a mistake when it comes to trying to defend these things thinking, I guess, somehow, if we can find a, 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 an example of God thwarting the will of man, that somehow we've proven determinism. And I love what one of my colleagues says, uh, Dr. Uh, Jonathan Pritchett, he says, guys, free will is not a superpower. You know, it's not like we're saying free will can thwart God's will. Uh, God can smite us at any moment he wants to smite us. Uh, if he wanted to just to crush us and we're dead, I mean, we're, we're not saying he that we have a superpower that's greater than God. We're saying God created us with the ability to make choices limited as they may be within our given context as finite creatures, but we're, we're still free to make the choices as to what clothes we wear, what things we say. Um, and God gives us gifts. Sometimes he gives somebody the ability to sing beautifully, but they're still responsible as to right. whether they sing praises or they sing curses my next breath is a gift from God, but I'm still responsible as to whether I use it to curse or to praise him. And so, yes, all things are from God. He gives us gifts, but we're still responsible for how we choose to use them. This is just the basic elementary way of understanding how the world works. And it's, it's, it's sometimes baffling to me that, that the, the deterministic mindset has so uh, easily grown unchallenged by uh, many uh, within our church today, uh, because it, I think it can be such a devastating way of looking at how God works, uh, and it can be devastating in how with how people deal with their own sins and their own addictions and problems. Because after all, if God has determined my addiction and my sin, then you know uh, I'm not really to blame ultimately, um, and it gives people the excuse for sometimes continuing to do bad behavior based upon a more fatalistic uh, application of a deterministic worldview. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that you kind of pointed that out. You know, at our church, we have this phrase, we say, well, slow that down, slow that down just a little bit, because there are, there are really people who, wonderful people that love God, that have this mindset that somehow God is already pre-picked everything in my life. And yeah. if he's pre-picked it and I don't do it, then, you know, uh, or I have no choice. I'm going to do it if God has 
called me to do it. Cause sometimes we use the word call and connect it with predestination. Right. Yeah. And so, so we say, well, God called you to do that. So you're going to do it. There's no way if you got to do it with one leg and one eye, you're going to, you're going to do what God called you to do. And it leads into a lot of other bad um, scenarios with things like yeah. marriage, you know, where, well, no, that God has called me to be with this one person and that's it. If I miss it, then I, I won't marry the right person. That is, that is dangerous, isn't it? That's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mentioned, I mentioned earlier, my, my wife is a, a marriage counselor and she's dealt with this because she has Christian in her uh, title uh, because she is a Christian woman, obviously. Um, so a lot of times Christians will come to her um, because of that. And and she says sometimes the hardest thing to deal with are Christians who have this mindset that everything is according to the plan of God. And and you, you'll hear oftentimes in counseling sessions, as she's told me, that people will say things like, well, I guess this is just you know my lot in life. This is what yeah. God has decided for me. Um, you know, this is just the way I am. This is the way God's made me. And, and she has to say, let's slow that down. You know, she uses mm -hmm. that same phraseology. Let's just slow that. Let's back up just a bit. Yeah. You don't think it might've been because you chose to drink um, until you became an alcoholic. And that could have been a reason your wife left you. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to do with what God has destined beforehand to happen. Right, right. Maybe that, maybe that's your fault, not God's. Okay. So in other words, you got to, you got to take the blame for when you've made a mistake, don't blame it on God's plan um, for your life. When you've uh, not lived your life, the way God has instructed us to live life. Um, and, and so much I think gets blamed on God that, that God doesn't want to have any, a credit for it's like what we read in Jeremiah nineteen five when they're burning their children to Malek and he's saying right. I didn't command this nor did I decree it it didn't even enter my mind this this is not they they were doing it as if it was for him this is not what I want from you this is not what I want you to do this is this has he he and every time sin is talking about God distances himself from it saying I didn't have anything to do with that that that's not pride unless they're not from me I didn't do that because he's holy that's what holiness is separation from sin. He didn't have anything to do with it. And I, and I think sometimes if God were counseling us and we were blaming things on him, I think a lot of times there would be like that, oh, slow it down, slow it down, slow it down. Don't blame that on, don't blame your mess on me. That's right, that's right. <laughs> your choices are what led you to where you are right now. So you need to own those choices. Yeah, yeah. And that and that's, you know, that's that's our phrase out. It's like, slow. can we slow down for a second and let's unpack that because you're making it as if, there was just nothing you could do about that, you know, and then people will be upset. Well, then why yeah. did God give me this bad husband or this bad wife or this bad, this, right, right. if he, if he wanted me to marry them, why did, why did they, why did it turn out like this? You know, I'm, I'm upset at God right now. I don't know if you really hear yeah. people say that, but in, in, in the, in the circles that I'm in, there's a lot of people upset at God because of this thinking, because they thought yeah. that God determine this to happen and then it goes bad and they're like why would god do this to me why would god do yeah. this to me? and I, I think that is just a danger on a very practical on a very you know everyday life level you know well anthony it, it creates a victimhood mentality you, you see this in the political world when when people say well the man's keeping me down 
yeah. or the government's keeping me down, or you know, th- this organization, that organization is keeping me down. And, and instead of saying, I'm, I'm personally responsible for my actions and how I live life, some people, and sometimes people do have a legitimate claim against the government or uh, overreach of, of people. I'm not trying to say that's uh, universally the case, but, but oftentimes what happens is people will use that as their scapegoat, their excuse for bad behavior by saying, hey, it's that person's fault or it's that organization's fault or it's those people's fault over there, instead of looking inwardly and saying, what about my choices? What choices have I made to lead me into this uh, condition or this place that I'm in so that I'm not just a victim that that's subject to some greater power that I can't control. Yeah. And, and I think anybody will tell you any, I know any good counselor would tell you that the victimhood mentality is, is the most paralyzing of all of the, the, you know, issues that you can run into because it keeps you stuck. It keeps you in the same place. It keeps you in your same addictions, in your same condition, because you think I can't do anything about it. Yeah, I, I'm here because of some other greater power, and therefore there's nothing really I can do about it. And that is a really bad place to be. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to circle back to two things, and then we're going to try to land this airplane. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you had talked about Jonah. You brought up Jonah, and that is um, a, a significant you know, passage that when I've talked to people who are uh, uh, Calvinists in in their viewpoint, they brought that scripture up to me. And I really didn't understand what they were trying to say to me um, until you just kind of unpacked it. Because when it was said to me, I was like, I don't, I don't see any determination in this at all. But now I kind of see what they were trying to get me to see was that Jonah was going to do what God told him to do, no matter what that. So that seems to be what their position was. And they don't take into account the <laughs> decisions that Jonah was making and how Jonah actually was fighting against God. And so, you know, what a guy told me is like, well, God, uh, God allowed that. God allowed that. And in, in, in my experience, the term allowed it, 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 it began to bother me when I would hear people say that because they would keep saying, God allowed, God allowed, God allowed, God allowed. Well, God allowed grandmom to die. God allowed this to happen. God allowed that to happen. And I would say, you know, I get that. I get what you're saying that God may be able to go in and stop it. Right. You know, like, like your friend said, Hey, if God really wanted to, he could end all this. <laughs> we don't, we, this doesn't have, but this allowing Jonah to get on a boat, <laughs> go in the opposite direction. I mean, fall asleep in the boat. Like, I don't care what God is saying. I'm going to go do what I'm going to do. Preparing this fish, because he says, you know what? You are going to do this, but I'm going to have to convince you. If you, for some people, that reading of that makes God sound weak. Like he, like he, he, his, his creation has the ability to resist him. And then they'll start throwing at me, well, the potter, you know, but the clay can't say to the potter, you know, and, and they'll start throwing all these things at me and you'll say, well, huh, do they have a point? 
or don't they? So let's just unpack that a little bit more because some of the things you were saying, we kind of breezed by, but I would really like you to unpack that a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, well, the, the story of Jonah is a great story of how God can choose a messenger. And so he's choosing Jonah, who's already a believer. I mean, he's a, he's a prophet and God chooses him to, to take the good news, the message to Nineveh. Um, he doesn't like Nineveh. He, and he, he, he knows the kind of God that he serves, that God's the kind of God that would actually forgive them if they repented. And he didn't want that to happen. That's the, that's the, the whole reason he wants to, to leave is that he doesn't want this nation to repent because he just hates them so much. He's very biased against them. And, and because of that, he, he wants to go another direction. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to obey God. Um, and, and God has at his disposal means to ensure that his message is delivered where he says he's going to deliver it. So even when God's chosen messengers are unfaithful, God's still able to bring about his purpose and his plan despite their unfaithfulness. This is a good example of what God's doing, generally speaking, to the nation of Israel. Israel is the messengers of God. Israel is the mouthpiece of God. They're the, the keeper of the laws and the covenants and the, uh, the, the, the Messiah comes through the nation of Israel. But what if Israel's unfaithful like Jonah was? What if they go their own way? Is God going to fail? Of course not. God has at his disposal ways and means to get his people to do what he needs them to do in order to fulfill his promise. That's one of the reasons I called my book, The Potter's Promise, is that God always keeps his promises, even when his chosen vessels don't. Right. So even when they don't obey him, he has ways to make sure his promise is fulfilled. Now, here's the problem. If you take the example of God convincing Jonah to go to Nineveh, and you use that as a proof text for irresistibility or effectual calling or something of that nature, which I've heard Calvinists do, they do the same thing with Paul. Well, look at Paul on the road to Damascus. God used a blinding light. Obviously, that's irresistible grace right there. Mm -hmm. and, and big fish with Jonah, that's an irresistible grace right there. Well, that's about God calling his messenger to go to lost people. Proof that God uses external means like a big fish and a blinding light to convince his messengers to go where he wants them to go is not proof that he's going to pre-select certain number of Ninevites and somehow irresistibly inwardly cause them to believe the messenger's uh, message. Right. That's just a non sequitur. It doesn't follow. Yes, God chooses messengers. Yes, God uses means to convince his messengers when they're unfaithful. But that does not mean, therefore, he's the one who causes whether you believe the messenger or not. Um, and so, yeah, God's going to use supernatural means at times, uh, interventions, like like he does with with Paul and and Jonah and other examples, um, but that certainly is not teaching irresistible grace, um, because irresistible grace, according to the Calvinists, is a inward movement of the heart that changes one's desires. He doesn't he, do, he doesn't do that to Jonah. He uses a big fish to convince Jonah. It's a blinding light that convinces Paul, not an inward irresistible change of heart that causes them to want to do what he says. Um, and so that, that's just a really, really bad example for the concept of irresistible grace. And you just have to point that out to the Calvinists, that that's not the narrative. That's not what the story's about. And, um, and, and point out, he's calling uh, uh, zealous people who are already followers of him to take a message to the people he wants to, to hear his truth so that they too can be, be believers and be saved. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for unpacking that. And so I have one more. <laughs> I thought sure. I, I thought I had, but there's this one more, and then that we're going to end last with uh, something that I heard you talking to vocab about the king's okay. heart 
is in the hands of God. And so that's what sure. we're going to end with, with that. But before we get to that, Esther. Okay, so Esther, you know, in Esther chapter four, everybody knows the story very well because it's it's been taught a lot that Esther is convinced by Mordecai to stay and go to the king on behalf of Israel. And there's a phrasing there that what if you have been placed here for such a time as this? And so most people then extrapolate that and say to everybody and everything, you know, God put you here for such a time as this. They take out the what if, and they just say, God put you here for such a time as this to say that God predetermined that you would be here to do this. Is that what is being, you know, uh, expressed in, 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 in the story of Esther that Esther was there. That was, there was, she was not going to do anything else. The only thing she was going to do is what she did because that's what God predetermined that she would do. Is that what's being taught there? Yeah. I'd have to go back and, 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 read, and really unpack the, it. Yeah. Yeah. Re, re, yeah. Read through the book of Esther again and remind myself of all the, the narrative and what's happening there. But when I hear something like, um, you know, you're, you're here for such a time as this, uh, again, you know, Jonah, you, somebody could say that to him. You, to you him. were here in Nineveh for such a time as this. And uh, you could say to Paul, when he's preaching to the Gentiles, you are here for such a time as this. And so proof that God puts people in a certain place at a certain time for a certain purpose doesn't prove in any way determinism. It, it proves that God determines things. Uh, us free will advocates aren't trying to say God never determines things. God makes a lot of determinations. And he does a lot of things. And he, yes, he puts people where he wants to put people and brings the right person, the right tool, if you will, to, 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 for the job, you know, and, and God knowing the heart of, of Esther and knowing her abilities and her emotions can bring her to a place for such a time as this, just like he has throughout human history to bring about his purposes and his plans. And so when people get the concept or idea that God's not determining anything, or he's not working in any way around us, I, I just, I don't. I, I don't believe that. I don't have to be a determinist to believe that God's working all around us and that God, yes, is providentially bringing about things for his purposes that maybe, yes, I got a flat tire today because um, there is a divine moment that I'm going to have with the tow truck driver uh, here in a little bit that I could actually share with them uh, the gospel and their their family comes to salvation. And you may say, well, did God orchestrate that? I'm fine with saying God could have orchestrated that. That's you know, God, God could very well orchestrate a lot of things that I'm not aware of. Angels working around us all the time of things that he's, he's uh, accomplishing his purposes through. But that doesn't prove determinism. Um, and and, I, and that, that's what I always kind of point out to, to my Calvinist friends or those who hold to more of a deterministic way of looking at life is that proof that God's working around us doesn't prove uh, determinism. It, to me, proves just the opposite because it's all been decreed and it's, it's going to exactly the way it's going to happen. What's, what's he working on? I mean, what's he working why, is it, why does it use up? What does it use? Like in Ephesians 111, why is it presently actively saying he brings about all things he's working together now, presently actively bringing about good. Um, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense if it's all been in a sense scripted by a divine sovereign decree before the foundation of the world. It seems to me the vernacular of scripture is that God's actively at work uh, even now to, to purpose and to bring about his plans, uh, according to his purpose. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I, I think that is, that is so powerful because at, at the end of the day, 
God, you know, and we were teaching on God's will. And one of the things that jumped out at me when we were teaching on God's will, uh, Thelema, God's best offer to man that can be accepted or rejected, that God is always working, right? And he's always inviting us to join in what he's doing. Some people are saying, you know, let's pray that God goes to work. <laughs> no, let's pray that you accept the calling to join what God is doing. The Bible says the harvest is plentiful. It's the laborers, right, that are few. Yeah. So God is always at work. He's always working and maneuvering things, and he's inviting us to take part in this. He extends to us these weak humans, <laughs> you know, and he says, you can play a major role in accomplishing this plan that I have purposed in the earth to bring about salvation. And when we're invited into it, we have the option to accept or reject. I think the, to think that we don't have that option, like you said, flat tire, tow truck driver. I don't have to share the gospel with the tow truck driver. I can talk about the football game with him. Right. I, I don't actually have to do. But what if it is the opportunity like Esther? What if you were placed in this position for such a time as this? What if God wants to do something here? Are you willing to partner with him in doing this? And, and I think that's a better understanding of those type yes. of things. So let's get to this final one. Um, and I, bl I believe it's Proverbs uh, 21. Let me pull it up real quick. I was just looking at it. Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it, and this is the King James Version, uh, whethersoever he will. And I just, I don't know, I, I, learned, I grew up learning it in the King James, so I just kind of like the yeah. way that one says. But this verse, what, what is Solomon trying to get across because he's the he's the wisdom guy right and so he's throwing yeah, out yeah. their nuggets of wisdom what does this really mean does this mean what we think it means that you know that if the the president you know is not doing what god wants him to do god's going to turn the president to do what he wants him to do or I, what does this mean <laughs> yeah it's a good, a good question and you mentioned the conversation i had with vocab um, and, and I think what turned that, that part of the conversation a little sour is that I, I referenced something like uh, molestation. Or yeah, rape. yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and that, that is a, I know that's a very emotional and a preliminary kind of way of sounding. But I, I think the reason that I went there is because oftentimes philosophers, theologians think of the worst possible evil our brains can conceive of when giving examples. And I had written an article in the past on this verse dealing with John Piper. And in, in this article, I quote from John Piper, who says this on his website, and I'll read it to you. It says, God brings about all things in accordance with his will. In other words, it isn't just that God manages to turn evil aspects of our world to good for those who love him. It's rather that he himself bring about, brings about these evil aspects for his glory and his people's good. This includes as incredible and unacceptable as it may currently seem. God's having brought about the Nazis' brutality at Birkenwald and Auschwitz, as well as the terrible killings of Dennis Rader and even the sexual abuse of a young child, end quote. 
So the, the, the quote there from Piper's website, it's actually Mark Talbert and the, he, Piper is the editor, but it's on the website still to this day, is saying God brings about everything, even, yes, even the molestations of a child. And I quote that because I'm trying to represent Calvinists with their own words, because sometimes you're accused, like vocab was, oh, we don't believe that. That's not what Calvinists believe, Leighton. You know, he's real you know, just upset with me. About, but this is what they're teaching. John Piper is arguably the most influential Calvinist in our world today. And this is on his website. It's, I'm not making these things up. And I had written that in my article, but I went on to, to record Proverbs 21.1 that, and, and, I, and I quote from Piper again, referencing Proverbs 21.1 as one of his proof texts for believing this. And John Piper goes on to write in his commentary on Proverbs 21.1, what is apparent here is that God has the right and the power to restrain the sins of secular rulers. When he does, it is his will to do it. And when he does not, it is, it is his will not to, which is to say that sometimes God wills that their sins be restrained. And sometimes he wills that they increase more than if he restrained them, end quote, by John Piper. I write this. This is a common teaching among Calvinistic pastors and apologists, but if God has indeed, quote-unquote, brought all things to pass by his unchangeable decree, as Calvinists often teach, then what is it in the heart of this ruler that God is restraining, if not his own unchangeable decree? In other words, hasn't God merely restrained the very intention he has unchangeably decreed? Suppose the ruler referenced there in Proverbs 21 wanted to rape a servant, and God restrained him from this heinously evil intention. From where did this evil intention originate? Didn't God sovereignly bring about the evil desire of this ruler to rape his servant by the same sovereign control that he restrained the ruler from acting upon that desire? How is God not merely restraining his own determinations in a world where there is no autonomously free creatures? In other words, if God sovereignly and unchangeably decrees all things, and all means all, meticulously everything, then the desire for that king to rape is sovereignly decreed by God, and God is stepping in to restrain that which he sovereignly decreed for the king to want to do. That does not make rational sense. It is absurdity, and that's the point I was trying to make to vocab, but because I used rape as the analogy, he jumped on that as being, it's, I'm being overly emotive um, and these kinds of things, and, and I try to back off. I wish I'd used a different example because of his, his reaction to that particular analogy. But you can see my point is that I'm trying to say, God doesn't, God does not decree rape and murder and molestations and uh, the Holocaust and all of these things. He's not bringing these things to pass and then stepping in to restrain some of it. Um, that, that doesn't make any rational sense. Um, and, and I'm trying to point this out to people like Vocab, because I think Vocab, generally speaking, doesn't want to blame God for evil yeah, and yeah. sin and rape. But I, I'm trying to show him that the claims of his system, uh, the, the implications of his system ultimately do lay that at the footstep of the decree of God. And I, and I think that's where the problem is with that kind of understanding of these scriptures. So to answer your question, this, this text is simply saying, who, who are known as, in those days, the, the divine rulers. The kings were seen as the, the gods of that day. And what, what this author is obviously saying is that kings can't do anything apart from the, the, the will of God. God can control even the, the heart of a king to do what he wants them to do. In other words, 
free will is not a superpower. God can thwart even the wills of kings to bring about his purpose and his plan if he so desires. Um, but you can't assume that he is uh, meticulously controlling every thought, action, and deed of every creature at all times, simply because the proverb says that, you know, God has the ability to control the hearts and minds of kings. Um, I, that's that's kind of an absurd conclusion. Yeah, and I, and I think it, it it is it is adding to <laughs> the text in some ways, because is that the intention of this text? You know, I think that that would be the argument of like, what is the actual intention of this text? Maybe the intention is just what it looks like, that it's just stating that these kings are not more powerful than God, that if right. God wants to turn him in a direction, he can. Does he do it all? Like you said, all the time, every every judgment of a king was God's judgment. Probably not. But if God wanted to, and he shows that with Pharaoh, right? He shows that with Pharaoh, that he knew how to push, I call it push Pharaoh's buttons, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because, you yeah. know, whenever I've given an analogy, I said, you know what? I can harden your heart right now if I say the right thing. If I know what will cause you to, you know, you latent flowers, I if I knew the right button to push, I could make you shut this camera off and get off of here and say, you know what, I'm never talking to that guy again. Am I some super, is that supernatural? No, there's, it's actually about knowing and God knows all of us, every, you know, person ever created, he knows the button to push. And with Pharaoh, it was very easy because Pharaoh thought he was a God. And so you challenge a God, a God's going to step up and like, no, I'm a God. So you're not going to tell me what to do. I was like, man, I can do yeah. that with a two-year-old, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and, and interesting. You mentioned that with the two-year-old, because I actually go on to write in that, that same article. I said, just because I have the physical ability to force my young child to eat her lunch right. or restrain her from eating her lunch does not prove that I use that ability every time my child eats or refrains from eating Yeah. and choosing not to use my physical ability to force or restrain my child doesn't prove I'm weak and incapable of doing so. Right. It only proves that I can do as I please with regard to my child. It does not prove that I'm pleased to physically control my child's every move, which is what determinism is, entails. Um, moreover, I even say, if my daughter doesn't have a will that's distinctly separate from my own, then what am I restraining when I physically keep her from eating? There's nothing to restrain or compel if there's not an autonomous will with which to contend. And that's the point of these kinds of passages is that the, the king, uh, the will of the king is obviously autonomously distinct from the will of the father. Otherwise, what is there to step in and to restrain and or permit? Um, right. And so again, Calvinists sometimes think they have a proof text when real, in reality, it's proving uh, free will all over again. Well, it's like you said, you know, a, a, as a father, and one of God's characteristics is his gentleness, that God, you know, is gracious and gentle. And so uh, I remember doing a study on the word gentleness or meekness, and it talked about applying the correct amount of harshness when necessary, that God is just not walking around using his power against people. He applies his power when necessary to bring about his ultimate goal, right? Which is the salvation of all men. If God's intervening, then it must be for the salvation of mankind. He's not Mm -hmm. just micromanaging every single thing in the world. The things that have to do with bringing people to salvation because he's not willing for anyone to perish, God is fully invested 
in 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 intervening in those situations as we looked at with uh acts chapter four which you know when i first read that and when i first talked to people who were calvinistic they were like see we got you <laughs> like i don't know if that's what that means i don't know if it's a gotcha moment or just showing how passionate god is about all men being saved and so uh yeah. this is this has been uh very fruitful um i guarantee um uh my listeners are going to really enjoy this. And I really thank you so much uh, for your time, Dr. Flowers, for just coming on. And, you know, uh, this, this was educational for me. And because I, I, I actually wanted to, I was like, I'm, I'm going to learn some more stuff, you know, <laughs> you know, and so thank you so much for taking the time. And, and for any listeners that are listening, and you heard us use a vocab's name, I, I love vocab Malone. So please don't think that I was trying to, you know, get back or anything like that. Um, I just really wanted to really hear a, a, a proper interpretation because that that interaction kind of got cut off and you guys really couldn't talk yeah. about that passage, but I thought that passage was very important. So again, um, yes. thank you so much for coming on. Now, what I like to do at the, end, at the end of my uh, uh, broadcast is that I like to have our guests pray for our listeners and if you would be so kind to just pray for our listeners sure. that um, God would just bless them. Amen. I'd be glad to. Let's pray. Father, first, I thank you for Anthony and uh, just uh, his heart for uh, your word and truth. And I, I thank you, Father, for those uh, who listen to him regularly and who are listening to us now, Father. Um, what's so supernatural about you is that you know every single uh, heart and every single individual and their families and their problems and the uh, the things that they're rejoicing over and the things that they are weeping about even now. And I just pray God that you uh, just allow them to feel that you are present with them and, and that you are uh, guiding and helping them through their lives. And that father um, help us to uh, continue to love your word, to study your word, to dive deep into it, to be strengthened by it, to realize that father, though we have people who may disagree with us about certain interpretations of scripture, um, we, we thank God, we thank you for them. Um, we thank you for giving us friends like vocab that push us to go deeper and to think more fully about your truth. We, we thank you father for, um, the fact that you give us the ability to make choices so that we can, uh, challenge each other and grow deeper and, and, uh, hold each other accountable. And father, I just pray that you help us to understand what that means uh, more deeply and understand you more fully. And, uh, as we go from this place, even now, father, that we will share, uh, the love of Christ with others, and uh, that we show love to them regardless of how they feel about us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. Dr. Uh, Flowers, could you give me your, your book title again? Just shout it out. Yeah. Yeah, there's two books, actually. The, the Potter's Promise is the one I mentioned earlier, which really gets into my journey in and out of Calvinism, and it has uh, more of the line, 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 line through Romans 8 and 9, John 6 and Ephesians 1, those kinds of things. And then the Potter's Promise is more of a, a kind of a positive presentation as to why we believe God provides for all people, that God is a demonstrably good God. We don't just say he's good because we're scared of him and we, we want him to be like us. We actually think he's good because he demonstrates his goodness and his, his, his love and that he is a, a, a God worthy of worship. 
And so that's really what that book is is getting into. And so both of those could be found on Amazon. Uh, if you if you search for my name, you would find both of those pretty easily. And then at sociology101.com, you could find more resources. The the YouTube page you could also find as well, uh, where there, uh, as you already mentioned, dozens of videos, if not hundreds of videos, uh, covering different aspects of this topic for those that want to go deeper. Yeah, and I'll definitely drop all those in the description. I'll uh, put those links in the description so people can find them quickly. Um, and so thanks again for taking the time. This was really good. Um, God bless you, sir. And to the listeners, uh, remember to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. God bless you. Amen. Amen.